Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Lucy, we're home! <laughs> Wrong show. Welcome back, Julia. Oh, it's wonderful to be back. I have missed each and every one of you. We've missed you, too. Welcome back to Dishing on Julia, the official companion podcast of Julia, the Max original series inspired by the life of Julia Child. I'm your host, Carrie Diamond, and I'm the founder of Cherry Bomb Magazine and the Radio Cherry Bomb Podcast, where I report on some of the most interesting women in the world of food, including trailblazers just like Julia. How thrilling! A whole new audience. I have big plans for this season. Season two of Julia is officially underway, and after each episode, I'm dishing with the creatives from the show, as well as special guests to give us a little perspective and food for thought. Today, on the first half of the pod, I'm speaking with episode four director Janae Lamarck and writer Natalia Temeskin. Then it's Aaron French, chef of The Lost Kitchen in Freedom, Maine, author of the brand new best-selling cookbook, Big Heart, Little Stove, and star of The Lost Kitchen on the Magnolia Network. Before we go any further, just know there is a whole saucepan of spoilers ahead. If you haven't watched episode four yet, check in with Julia and her crew and come right back. No, I'm glad to be back in the swing of things. My mind is racing with ideas. After a quick detour to Paris, Julia and Paul are back in the U.S. The French chef gang can barely contain their excitement as they eagerly await Julia's return to the WGBH studios. It's like the first day of school. I know. I couldn't sleep last night. Getting back into the swing of things doesn't prove to be as simple as Julia hoped. Her editor, Judith Jones, is also having a bumpy return. The mounting hostility from her boss, Blanche Knopf, played by the exquisite Judith Light, doesn't help. You have a right to be angry, Blanche, but not with me. I am not your punching bag. If you feel like a punching bag, you've never been punched, my dear. Elaine excels as the new director of The French Chef and seems to have won the crew over. Well, everyone except Julia. Avis gets vulnerable with Stanley and continues to come into her own. Stanley, you have to know that I haven't been out on a date with a man in over 45 years. The last time I was on a date, the Model T was all the rage. There were no televisions, no commercial air travel. I'm talking pre-Oreo. Now, let's talk with our first guests, director Janae Lamarck and writer Natalia Temeskin. Go on, the suspense is killing me. Janae and Natalia, welcome back to Dishing on Julia. So nice to talk to you two again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. 
There is so much to unpack in this episode, so I would love to jump right in. I'd like to know a standout moment for each of you. Janae, you want to go first? Yeah. Standout moment for me on set was when Julia first comes back from France and enters the studio. And it was a oneer, and it, so it was a big coordinated moment among everybody to get all those lines in and land where we needed to land. And it's always this beautiful thing when you accomplish it, when you actually like nail it. And everybody feels this sense of accomplishment that is, there's nothing like it on a set when everyone's like, we all worked to get that. What was the technical term you used? A runner? A oneer. Like it's, a it, was one, it was a one shot. It was one for, not for the whole scene, but for the whole sort of beginning of the right. scene. I love when there's a scene like that, but I did not know they are called oneers. Okay. There one take. <laughs> Natalia, how about you? Actually, one of my standout moments is around that same same scene. I think the moment when Elaine has to introduce herself to everyone and it just has to be so kind of brave, but makes it look so casual and easy. I admire her so much in that moment. I'm like, I need that energy in a lot of moments in my own life that just, you know, stepping up and being being kind hearted, putting her heart first in that moment. Since you're both alums of season one, curious how working on season two compared to season one, especially in terms of your experiences, your creative challenges. In season one of any show, you're always finding the show, you know, and that's just the journey you're on in season one. And then I felt like in season two, it was all the same, same actors, same directors, Daniel and Chris are there like it, it just we all knew each other really well and there was a there was sort of a trust and an ability to relax into it a little bit more even though you're never relaxed really on set. <laughs> Janae I love that expression you used you're always finding the show what does that mean? I just think that from the writing process you know they've written the whole season and you hope for the best and then the actors get in there and you have to they have to like embody the characters and the directors have to get caught up to what all the intentions of the show the reality is is like even as the creator or showrunner you don't really know what the show is until you make the show and so especially in that first season and then in the second season people usually like the showrunner creator they know more they know what worked last time in last season. They spent a lot of time in post. They know what they need and what they don't need in a more exact way. And so definitely, yeah, the first season is always, what are we making here? And I think what they made was something really cohesive and smart and fun and delightful. Natalia, how about you? I agree completely that it feels like coming home. One creative challenge, I think, for us in the writer's room is hoping that our audience trusts us to do something a little different to start. And so I loved that our episode was almost the return to what's familiar. <laughs> we get to come back home and get back into that groove. But I, I thought it was such a cool swing to just start in a completely different space and throw everything that we thought we knew about it out the window for a little while. I'd love to talk about Alice's character a bit. She's the only main character who's purely fictional. And I'm curious, does that present a sense of freedom when writing for Alice or directing Brittany, who plays Alice? Janae, you want to take that? Not for me. I, I actually feel a profound responsibility when portraying Alice, just because I'm the only director of color on the roster. 
And, you know, Brittany is also playing the only really the main character, the only person of color who's a main character on the show. And so I want to do her storylines justice in a way that and there's a pressure, I feel that just because we have that sort of alliance (laughs) as women of color. uh, Yeah. Yeah. She is such a special character. I mean, I was so happy to to see her back and that she has this incredible storyline throughout the whole series. And I also think because she's the only fictional character we've got here, in some ways there's infinite choices as to where you could go with her because she is fictional. And also you have the pressure of like, you want to do her storylines justice Natalia? No, I mean, it's, um, she's my favorite. Is that a secret? I, I don't think so. <laughs> I love her. <laughs> Everything you just said, I completely agree with as far as feeling a little bit of a duty to really protect her as the Black female character that we're following. And I think that that overwhelmed a little bit of my process in season one because I felt a lot of responsibility as one of two Black women writers in the room But this season, I felt a little bit more like, I guess to your point earlier, like I know her better and we all do. And I don't have to necessarily try to get out in front all the time as as a black woman writer and try to make it make sense or translate something that I think is important. I think we just all knew her better. In that way, it did feel like I had a little bit more of a sense of fun and freedom when I engaged her this season. It felt like I've decided that she's me in a multiverse and so at this point, I'm just living out versions of my reality. And it's it's fun. I'm so invested in what happens with her professionally, what happens with her personally. I was so happy. There's a, a love interest in her life. And maybe that's it. It's We know how Julia's story ends. We know what happens with all of those other characters. But Alice, we have no idea. Carrie, I think you just cracked something. That is so good. Mm-hmm. You're so right. Mm-hmm. I love that. I would just say for me as a director, whether they're fictional characters or based on real characters, it's all kind of the same to me in my process, just because you're still approaching it as like, who are these people? How do they feel? What's happening in this scene? And sort of like always fighting to tell the story, the emotional story of the scene. So it doesn't really affect me whether they're real characters or not. One of the big things you discuss in this episode is birth control. So, Natalia, as the writer of this episode, why are we talking about birth control in a series about Julia Child? (laughs) It's that time, right, where women are sort of stepping into their power over their bodies legislatively and and just socially. What was interesting about the way that storyline played is that Alice really turned to a friend that sort of women have this probably you know, more uh, than we would like to admit, we still operate on this word of mouth system, I think a lot of times, about how to best take care of ourselves. And it's really true in this case, you know, because she can't comfortably ask. I don't think she can think of anyone else in her life to talk to about that. Except her mother. Right. Mm -hmm. I'd love to know about the timeline in the writer's room, Mm. because, you know, we had the Supreme Court overrule Roe v. Wade in June of 2022. Did that influence the storyline, Natalia, or was that something you were already working on? It definitely influenced it. I think it was something that they were thinking about wanting to explore, but the debate around that coming up and all of the protests and all of the discussion, it was important to Daniel in particular, I know, to really 
not shy away from what's so difficult about it even now to bring some of that into this storyline. And, you know, we had some really vulnerable conversations in the writer's room, which is a majority female writer's room. It's just difficult to talk about when you try to sort of put a blanket statement over what you're trying to say about it. But when you talk about it through the lens of characters that we know and love, I think it becomes, it's it's palatable in a way that I think allows the messaging to really sink sink in. And Janae, how did you approach all of this, knowing what was going on in the world? For me, I was more specifically engaged in the emotional story of Alice's journey to get access to birth control in the in the episode. It's just like really capturing the disappointment when she's treated in this totally just totally unfair and just cruel way by the doctor that we can assume that Elaine has very easily received birth control from and then Alice comes in there as a black woman and is treated completely differently and it's just it's disheartening it shows truth of you know America at that time and even it was for me because I've I've done a few episodes with Alice in, in scenes with Alice and her mother that it felt really great to, to do the scene with them at the end where she asked her, it's humiliating for her, but asking her mother for help and bringing them together in a way they haven't been together before. It, it, it afforded a, a, a moment of deep intimacy that we haven't seen between them on the show and her mother helps, you know? So going from this horrible moment with this doctor to this moment with her mother, it moved me a lot. As upsetting as it was to watch that scene with the doctor, even more upsetting was realizing, you know, what, 60 years later, it's the same for a lot of women in this country? Yeah, I mean, that access, yeah, to family planning, birth control, abortions, everything. Like, it's sad what's happening right now. We're dealing with these themes through Julia Child. She is such an unlikely vehicle to deliver all these messages. You brought up whether it was something we had planned, and I think that you're aware that Julia Child cared very much about these things. And so that was for sure part of what we wanted to seed here was not just that this is happening to Alice and all of the implications of that, but how Julia responds and how how will all of these conversations affect the next step for her, you know, as a woman in the world with influence. Yeah, I was curious if the storyline was a nod to Julia Child's support of Planned Parenthood, which some people know about, some people don't. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. We really wanted to at least acknowledge, I don't know how far we're going to take that story. Hopefully we'll have a lot more seasons to do those things. (laughs) But we wanted to at least acknowledge that she put women and their rights and their health at the forefront of what was important to her. And it really was a type of feminism that we, we we're always looking to highlight those kind of nuanced feminist aspects of who she was. It's not cut and dry and pretty all the time, but it, it was very potent and mm-hmm. it was there. And talk to me about directing a period piece. I'm so curious about that because, you know, you need the modern audience to relate to it and not feel like they're watching a documentary from the early 1960s. Have you done period pieces before? No, this is definitely this is definitely my first one. I absolutely love it so much <laughs> just because the costumes, the cars, the challenges, the visual effects and collaborating to make sure that like we cover up modernity in every scene. It's just such a fun challenge and you just get to step out of what's 
normal uh, in terms of directing a current day show. And it just takes you it takes you to another place. Natalia, how about you? How about writing a period? Well, piece? I was going to say, too, on the prep side, it's so fun because in the writing of it, it's really cool to write a period piece, you know, because I love immersing myself in another time, a simpler time, maybe in some cases. And like just thinking about that. This is my, you know, my parents are like kids at this time. Like, what is that like? Or but I will say the writing it's your imagination, right? Like it's not real. And so when I come out there and they're bringing the gifts, for example, to the table of what they could potentially be using for props for, you know, when Julia brings the gifts from Paris, just seeing the fact that there are all these old, literally like vintage items all around and it's just pick some. And I'm just like, where am I? (laughs) This is like a like museum. It's just so cool. Like that's the part that as a writer that I feel, and I hope that with our new deal after our strike, that more and more writers get to go to set because that translation from the imagination to the real is so crazy to watch. Also, I remember Savinors, when Savinors got transformed, walking through there, it already feels a little bit old timey. There are aspects of it that still have a vestige of an older, but then (laughs) when you see what they do to it after that, you're like, that thing, that thing looked as new as it could possibly be compared to what it looks like now. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And that's Julia's favorite butcher shop back in Cambridge. Would love to know what the most rewarding aspect of bringing Julia Child's story to life has been for each of you. What's so great is that Julia is preserved in the way that we do Julia. The way that people seem to feel about her, that warmth, that kind of comfort. I love that that wasn't fake and that we get to show that it was real and all the sort of implications of what it is to live that way. That makes me feel happy because I I do scroll through and so much of what I watch is like expose documentaries on some beloved figure or, you know, there's a part of me that all of us that suspects like, oh, well, these people that we love on TV, they can't possibly be that way. This is a fake person. And I love that that's not true about Julia Child and that we get to show more of why she's pretty cool. How did she first come into your lives? I did not grow up in a family that had Julia's books, that talked about Julia Child. I was that first generation Sesame Street, Electric Company, 3-2-1 Contact, all those things. But Julia kind of evaded me until I was an adult. How about for the two of you? I didn't grow up with Julia Child either. I think maybe Saturday Night Live. And I wasn't (laughs) alive for that episode, I don't think. But I think it made its way to me before The French Chef did. So I've learned a lot working on the show. Janae, how about you? I definitely was aware of her growing up, but I think Julie and Julia is probably the first time that I was really thinking about her as a person, really. When I got hired to do this show, I my daughter was going to school in Pasadena. She still is, but at a school that the drop-off, Julia's house is two doors down, that she grew up in is like two doors down from her drop-off. And so I would pass her house every single morning taking my daughter to school. So it was just weird. (laughs) When you would go past Julia's house, did you talk to her? Well, usually I was like one cup of coffee in and and in my sweats dropping off my daughter. So yeah, no, not really. (laughs) I wasn't really thinking about her. You weren't commuting with the ghost of Julia Child? (laughs) No, but I did. And like, it's funny because now I live in Pasadena, which is where she grew up and both my kids, you know, go to school there. And I also grew up in that area. 
And so I felt like a, a kinship to, to sort of researching her childhood and what her youth was like growing up where I grew up. Yeah. <laughs> Natalia, how about you? Any seances with Julia? Oh, <laughs> you know, I definitely cook more when I'm working in the writer's room and I, and I use a little bit more butter <laughs> than I normally would. Right now, I don't think Julia would be super pleased with how butter-free uh, my cooking is, but I'm sure once the season drops, I will be right back, right, just in time for the holidays. <laughs> what message or feeling do you hope viewers take away from this episode? Because this, this is a pretty profound episode. Natalia? I think that I hope that viewers feel a little bit more conscious of, I guess, the benefit of becoming a little more vulnerable with the people that love you. I think there's a bit of that going on with Alice and her mom, Julia and Paul, even Julia and Avis talking about, you know, their friendship and how they can make room for this third. I don't think that anyone wants to hurt the people they love or to disappoint the people they love. But we see in this episode that usually they'll meet you where you are and you'll be surprised uh, for the better. Yeah, I mean, I think along those lines, Natalia, I think that there's this you know, the scene where Julia is disheartened by the elements at Mm. play (laughs) back at the studio. And so she does basically a team building exercise where she brings everybody into the set and they make chocolate mousse together. And there's like this like feeling of family and home and joy and togetherness that I think is sort of representative of the show as a whole what the show, what the essence of the show is all about. And I love that that Julia initiates that. She's like, we need to come back together. And I don't know, I think it's just like a lesson in instead of attacking all of the issues and problems at hand with a conflict, her approach is to bring everybody together so that everyone can see each other's humanity. And I think that that's, I think that's really beautiful. I also love that this is a Thanksgiving drop because it's a very, you know, cooked with your family, eat with your family. It's perfect. We're all coming together from disparate points of views. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Usually the last question is, if you were having dinner with Julia, what would you make her? But since this is the Thanksgiving episode, you're having Thanksgiving with Julia. What dish do you bring? I am overwhelmed. (laughs) I am so scared. (laughs) I have this cheesecake I found online that's like a chocolate cookie bottom. And on the top, there's cranberry and orange peel and all those yummy festive flavors. It's the one everyone asks me to do at Thanksgiving. So I'll probably do that for her. Yum. Is there a recipe for that anywhere that we can find, Natalia? Surely it is on allrecipes.com or some manner of nonsense like that. I don't even know where I found it. (laughs) Okay, so you're bringing dessert. Janae? My husband is an excellent cook, and he has an old family stuffing recipe that involves a lot of prep work and many, many, many ingredients. And it is the most delicious stuffing that I've ever had. Honestly, like I, I could just like have just that for Thanksgiving and I'd be thrilled. Yeah. Yum. (laughs) Yum. So you'd bring the stuffing. And that sounds like it's a family recipe, so we can't necessarily find that online. Yeah. They've been making it since he was a a child. Yeah. So it's like an old printout that's copied and like, yeah. So I have no idea where it was from. When it comes time to give thanks, Janae, what are you thankful for? 
in line with all of all you know sort of everything we've been talking about today i'm just i'm thankful for getting to tell human stories with other people that are creative and kind and and care about telling human stories as well i just shout out to daniel and chris who are just the most incredible humans and i feel anytime i get hired on a show where the people in charge are like they are, which is exceedingly rare. I am so, so grateful. Yeah. So and I'm just grateful I'm making a living doing the thing that I love as well. And that I'm grateful for my family and yeah, you better not my get children, the, the health, the health of my family and my children. Natalia. I would say I'm thankful for being able to make a living doing something I love and for family and also, I guess, a little bit for being alive, period. What a time. So feeling very grateful for just breaths in the morning, coffee in my mouth, and then getting to do something cool like write about Julia Child. That's amazing. Janae and Natalia, thank you so much. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Now, let's check in with Erin French of The Lost Kitchen and the new cookbook, Big Heart, Little Stove, which hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Erin has a lot in common with Julia. Cookbooks, a TV show, a supportive spouse, and we talk all about it. Your show, well, it makes me happy. I cook with you every Sunday night. And after a long and often challenging week, that is something. Aaron French, welcome to Dishing on Julia. Thank you. You've so many similarities to Julia Child. One big one is you did not set out to be a food TV star. Mm. Did you ever aspire to be on television? Never. <laughs> Absolutely not. I never saw my life going this way, but I'm I'm really enjoying this opportunity that I've been given to share more stories of food. It's kind of like, you know, I've been thinking about this as a it's like, you know, you write songs and you can share them with thousands and thousands of people, but I cook for 53 people a night and that's as big as my song gets. So to be able to do this is like putting out an album to be able to, to, to share with people in that way. Tell us about Lost Kitchen, the restaurant. 
So Lost Kitchen, the restaurant, is my small restaurant in my hometown of Freedom, Maine. And we do one seating an evening, 53 people. It's like a five-hour dinner of a feeling of like you're coming into my home and I'm, I'm making you a personal dinner for the night. You also came up with a wildly unique reservation system. Mm. Tell us about it. It's a love or hate thing. So we we take reservations by postcard, which sounds absolutely insane. But as things got very busy at the restaurant, I wanted to slow it down. And we could have gone online, but that was going to make things faster. And the only way I could think of just being really simple and slowing things down was going old school and, and going by post. Are you best friends with the post office folks? <laughs> They're pretty good friends with us, yeah. <laughs> Everyone gets a pretty big kick out of it. As you can imagine, a small town with 719 people and a small post office that's only open for two hours in the morning and two hours in the afternoon. When we have reservation season, it is it, it really generates a lot of excitement. How many postcards did you receive for the 2023 season? 67,000. They come from every state. We see them from around the globe. Sometimes you'll see one that will come in months later because it came from China and it took that long to get there. It's really interesting to see that people from all over the place are are looking to come there. Let's talk about the television show. It's also called The Lost Kitchen. What is the show all about? The show is really just about a day in the life or a week in the life of being at the Lost Kitchen and what it takes to create these meals and these moments and these memories. And it's really about following our team and seeing the ups and the downs and everything that we go through to pull off a meal through a week. It's a wonderful show to watch. It could not be more different from Julia's show. Julia's The French Chef is what we now consider a classic cooking program. She was all about teaching people. And I do feel like in your soul, you are a teacher. Hmm. What are you teaching people through your television show? I'm probably teaching people how to evoke feelings from a meal. It's not really about teaching people how to make these dishes because we change the dishes every week. And it's not like we have the same recipe, but it's really about how can you make delicious food that creates an amazing feeling and really kind of grounds people for a moment and creates something that lasts long after that plate has been licked clean. Like, what do you have left? You've got those memories. When I watch the show, one of the things I definitely learned from you and that I feel you communicate to your audience is the importance of loving your local farmers and other purveyors. How does that factor in? For me, just being, because I am a very simple cook, I'm not making fancy, over-the-top, long recipes. It really comes down to simple, good ingredients. And, and I think I've always come to understand that it's the closer you can get those ingredients, the better it is. And also the relationships. I love making dishes that I'm using produce that was grown by people that are friends or neighbors of mine. And the pride that I have with that end result is so much greater of knowing where that came from and knowing who you're supporting from the seed to the final garnish on that plate. That's what means a lot to me. You mentioned that you are self-taught. Julia famously went to Le Cordon Bleu. How did you teach yourself to cook? Well, I grew up in my family's diner, and so I was really taken in at a young age. I was five years old when my, my dad bought his restaurant and, and grew up in the industry. So I, I really had no choice but to figure out how to cook because, you know, that was kind of if you wanted to be around your dad, spend any time with him because he was working 17, 18-hour days. It involved helping out in the kitchen, and so I, I found my way there, and for a while really tried to get away from it. I wasn't it wasn't something I wanted to do. It was it was what I was given in my life and not necessarily by choice. Eventually, I found my own way to make my own food and then I started to find my own beauty of those creations. 
I remember this moment when I had had my first restaurant, that closed, there was a little bit of a gap time, opened my now current restaurant, and one of the wait staff came in, she came back to work, and she said, oh, Erin, I have just missed your food so much. And that really hit me because I didn't understand. I was like, I have food? Like, I have a style? Like, she was recognizing a style that I was creating that I didn't know that I had. And so I started to really pay attention and say, well, what is she seeing? And what are people recognizing here? And I started to hear that inner voice in me of who I was as a cook. And it was garnishing with edible flowers. And it was making simple salads and old-fashioned grandma cakes dolloped with whipped cream. And that it didn't have to be fancy sous vide dish that my food was simple and my food was thoughtful and my food was garnished with love. And that's when I started to recognize my my food voice, which I think is so important when you're a self-taught cook to find that voice so that you can really lean into it. It comes through so strongly and so beautifully in your brand new cookbook, Big Heart, Little Stove. It just came out, hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Congratulations. Thank you. What is this book all about? This book is really about unlocking the key to making delicious, simple dinners that are filled with love, that can create memories and moments and feelings. For me, demystifying what made The Lost Kitchen so special, I started The Lost Kitchen on a four-burner electric stove in my upstairs apartment, and what it turned into was something so much greater than my wildest dreams, and starting simple and starting with good ingredients and simple dishes. What are some recipes folks can make to replicate what they might enjoy at the Lost Kitchen? There are so many in the book, and I'm so excited about so many of these recipes. Starting out with serving oysters at home, which I think is such a special thing, which people might say, like, why would I do that? But think about that. You go to a friend's house and you're having oysters. That feels like decadent because you only get that food when you go out to eat. So the thoughtfulness behind that, I think, is simple but a sweet touch. And what do you serve it with? Never cocktail sauce. Never, ever, ever cocktail sauce. Is that a terrible thing in Maine? Terrible. Why would you ruin that perfectly gorgeous oyster by just drowning it in ketchup? <laughs> is that a Maine thing or is that, you think, it's universal? It's a Maine thing. I okay. don't know. But I want to make it a Maine thing. So I hope my, my Mainers will, will follow me with this. But I just love shallots and rice wine vinegar, a little black pepper. And sometimes in the summertime, I'll add in chopped strawberries, which is a little surprising because it's sweet against the salty. Any fruit, like peaches, you could just chop those up into cucumbers, anything. You can make it your own and it feels special. And and we love to serve them on frozen rocks. We'll go down to the beach and forage and then we freeze them and make it just look like a scene like, oh, I just found these oysters looking so gorgeous just like this. And it's free. (laughs) I'm going to go find some rocks in Brooklyn and put them... (laughs) In my freezer, they might not be as pretty as the ones you're getting on coastal Maine, but I I can still try. You and Julia definitely have cookbooks in common. This is your second cookbook. You've also written a memoir. Julia had memoirs. I was so tickled to learn people send you Julia's cookbooks. Mm. Yeah. Isn't that funny? I have never purchased one of her cookbooks for myself. I've never received them for, like, holiday gifts from family members, but I have strangers send them to me all the time. (laughs) They find signed ones at garage sales, things like that. You and your mother, in fact, found the first one in your collection, right? Or did your mother keep that one? She found it. She kept it. We fought over it. 
but yeah, we we like to go antiquing, and, and there was a, a time when she happened to find a Julia Child book, and, and she opened it, and it was signed, and she scurried off quickly to make sure that she purchased it before I could steal it out of her arms. And I think ever since then, every, everyone sends me their copies to be like one up and mom a little bit. <laughs> it feels so magical to have a cookbook that Julia touched. Touched, yeah. yeah. Why do you think people are sending you Julia's cookbooks? I wonder if they see the small similarities of imperfection. I'm be the first to tell you how imperfect I am. And, and I tell everyone, you know, through the show, we show you all the mistakes we make through the memoir. I've been very honest about being imperfect. And I think there's a similarity there of two very imperfect women in the kitchen that are just making up their own rules and forging their own way. Julia loved that phrase, the courage of your convictions. Mm. And I feel like you embody that. Yeah, that is one that I have held on to, if anything, that's one that I've adapted in, in my own life. Like you have to, because there are so many people who will come at you and tell you that they know better or they have a better idea. And you just have to like dig deep into that spot in your gut where you feel it and be like, no, I'm going to have the courage just to like do my own thing, my own way. Back to recipes. Julia is famous for her long recipes. You are not famous <laughs> for long recipes. You seem to favor a very concise recipe. How do you approach recipe writing? Oh, recipe writing is very challenging. It's it's very different than being a cook and and you're trying to put down recipes in a way that you're sharing with people that you're hoping that they can recreate these same exact things at home, which is tricky because you're not there with them in their kitchen. And to be able to put those down and have it actually work, which is a responsibility as a cook writing a recipe. You don't want people wasting ingredients or wasting their time to have something that isn't special at the end of it. I'm a much more simpler cook than than Julia. You'll never see my recipes probably never have more than five to six ingredients and they never last more than a page long and they don't take days to make. I'm an impatient cook as well. So I, I definitely approach recipe writing with the simplest of thoughts. Another thing you have in common with Julia is a very supportive, warm marriage. Mm -hmm. Your husband, Michael Dutton, folks know him from the show. <laughs> he shows up on the show often. It's always fun to see you two together. Julia had Paul. Mm -hmm. How did you manage to find a Paul in your life? It wasn't easy, and it, and it, it took a bit of a, a second chance. But, you know, finding Michael by a sheer wink online on Match.com. But it is so important to to have that sort of relationship, to be able to be where I am today. I would not be in this position. or I would not be as strong because it sucks so much out of you. And to have someone who's continually just like blowing air into your flames to keep you burning and keep you strong, that is something that I don't think I understood really, truly a partnership of the strength of two people together, so much stronger than one. And you do need that person who's rooting you on and lifting you up and telling you you're not crazy. And I, I do, I see that. You see that, you know, between like Ina and Jeffrey and, you know, Julie and Paul. And to have that relationship is how you can really start to fly. Since you're working together, you're doing the show together, so many things together. And we still like each other. <laughs> that, that kind of was my question. How do you turn it off? When the oh. work day is over, because I'm guessing your work day does not really end. It doesn't. And, you know, I'm a little sad to say, like, there's no off button. We don't turn the button off. We were kind of laughing a couple of weeks ago. We were having a really stressful day and we were driving to town. And, you know, Michael was like, 
people don't understand, like, we do so much. Like, I'm a plumber. I'm a parking attendant. You're a hostess. You're a waitress. We're, we're cleaning the toilets. We're, we're scrubbing the sinks. We're cutting firewood. We're, oh, and we're parents. You know, and it just kept going and, and going and going. And we, and we just started laughing because of how much we're actually doing. It's, it, it's a little comical at some point. And, and I don't know that we figured out an off switch. We do laugh that it's like kind of being in the driver's seat and we're, we're both in the front seat and my foot is on the gas all the time, down, 90 miles an hour, let's go. Michael's on the other side just kind of pumping the brakes like, come on, babe, let's slow down a little bit and, you know, lets me speed when I need to speed and pumps the brakes when the brakes need to be pumped. This episode is airing on Thanksgiving. Do you cook on Thanksgiving? I haven't cooked on Thanksgiving for years it's been years. It's funny because I used to be the one, my mom and I, we would go through gourmet magazines and pick out what we were going to make and really do something special. But, you know, since the restaurant, just things have just gotten crazy. And to think of a, a day of cooking, isn't that terrible? I love cooking. I don't look at holidays as like a day off. <laughs> if anything, it's like, oh, great. I got to, you know, do even more. It's me and it's Michael and it's a roasted chicken. And we're just happy to have that quiet moment together. Because literally every day at the Lost Kitchen is like a holiday for the people who get to go. Yeah. You are serving them a holiday meal. It is like that production. It, it truly is. It's like Christmas dinner. You think of some people who have waited years to come here and, and they're getting in on this special occasion. They've traveled and the anticipation and they wake up and it's like Christmas morning and you're supposed to give them the best meal of your life. So I, I am producing a Christmas dinner a couple times a week. So, If someone were to ask you to bring a dish to a Thanksgiving dinner, what would you bring? Probably a nibble board. We're going to some friend's house for Thanksgiving this year, and I was like, what can I bring? And everyone's, I think, scared to ask me to bring something, so they're all kind of being quiet. But I did hear they were like, last year she brought this amazing cheese plate, so I'll probably bring just some sort of snacks to get things rolling. What's on a signature Aaron French nibble board? Oh, always cheese and olives and nuts, and if I can find anything that's seasonal fruit-wise, homemade crackers, if I'm in the mood, because that feels like you did something a little special. Right, my eyebrows just raised. I was like, a homemade cracker? Yeah. Yeah, that's nice. Let's talk about turkey, because there's so much turkey pressure. If you had to man one of those turkey hotlines on Thanksgiving Day, which you're looking at me like that's your idea of a third ring of hell, (laughs) but let's say someone forced you to do it, what would your advice be about making a turkey on Thanksgiving? Brine it. Wet brine? Dry brine? Wet brine. You got to do it. It will save you. If you don't know what you're doing, you could overcook it. It's still going to be good. Like brine saves all poultry. Just I can't praise brine enough. So brine that turkey. Hospitality is a huge thing for you. That's something we don't talk about. When we talk about Thanksgiving, we automatically go to the turkey. The food, yeah. The way you do things, it's almost like we should be talking about what's the hospitality we're providing Mm. first before we even think about what the menu is. I think about, you know, you could make all that food and have that on the table and the plates will be licked clean and it'll be over. And people will forget about that. That that is not, I mean, the food is the reason we come together, but it's our opportunity when we set that table and when we set that tone and that feeling in the room is a powerful one because people will always remember the way that they felt and they will forget all of the other things. So yeah, the food is great and delicious and important. And for me, that's just my anchor of how I pull people in and get them to show up to my place and come to the table. But the thing that I've realized at The Lost Kitchen is they come with these expectations of the best meal of their lives. But what they leave is with a feeling that was so much more that they weren't expecting, that they were coming for a moment, they were coming for a feeling, they were coming for a memory. 
And that took them by total surprise. And we can do that at home. We can do that on Thanksgiving. We can do that on Christmas Day. It really is about the feelings that we are creating. What are you most thankful for this year? To still be doing what I'm doing and loving what I'm doing and the support of my incredible team and my family. And I'm feeling so fortunate this year. I've had one of the best years of my entire life, and I I couldn't be more proud of everything that we're doing and accomplishing and together as a team. I'm so happy to hear that. Last question. Julia is coming over for dinner. What do you make? That would be terrifying. Can you imagine? I would just make a roasted chicken. Doesn't everyone just want roasted chicken? And then maybe like warm cookies at the end. Something really simple. Just like simple salad, tossed salad, roasted chicken, slather and butter, roasted onions. Call it a day. Erin French, thank you so much for your time. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks, Carrie. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you to Janae Lamarck, Natalia Tomeskin, and Erin French for joining us on Dishing on Julia, the official companion podcast of Julia, now streaming on Max. Dishing on Julia is produced by the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network. Special thanks to Stephen Toll and the team at CityVox. Our executive producers are Catherine Baker and Yasmin Nesbat. Our associate producer is Jenna Sadu. And our editorial assistant is London Crenshaw. I'm your host, Carrie Diamond. We'd love for you to leave a rating and review for Dishing on Julia on your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to subscribe. When you leave your review, let me know what you're thankful for this year. I am very thankful for Julia and for all of you. Happy Thanksgiving. In the meantime, leaving you with a bit of wisdom from our friend, Paul Child. You're a wonderful woman. You're in the stratosphere now. But few people can't handle it. Nuts to them. Let them go. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max.